Hey everyone, it's Abadesi, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. Today, I'm joined by Ryan Singer, head of product strategy at Basecamp and author of new book, Shape Up, Stop Running in Circles and Ship Work That Matters. Drawing from his 16 years at Basecamp, Ryan gives frank advice to help you get better at shipping products that your customers love on time. We talk about the learnings from his book, including why wireframes and documents are overrated, why betting works better than planning, and why it's important to separate strategic failure from execution failure. Of course, we also discuss the products that Ryan is raving about these days. This is an episode you don't want to miss. Ryan Singer, thank you so much for joining us on Product Hunt Radio today. We're huge fans of everything you do over at Basecamp, but maybe for those people who've been living under a rock for a few years or haven't been on Twitter, can you please tell us about what you do? Sure thing. I have been at Basecamp for 16 years now. And I started off as a web designer, you know, when that was the title, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think we were, we were just, just past webmaster at that time. It was around uh, 2003 base camp at the time was called 37 signals. And it was just a very small team, Jason, myself, and, and another guy, Matt Linderman, uh, we were doing website redesigns. And so I came in as a UI designer and it was a time at the, when the web was newer and a lot of people were doing stuff that was very graphic, very visual, kind of taking print and putting it onto the web, you know, and the stuff that we were interested in was different. It was much more about how does it work? What's functional? What's clear? We were kind of part of the early usability movement. So it was more about really what's native to the medium and kind of how do you do interaction design better on the web? So that's where I started. And then Jason had this idea for, for Basecamp shortly after I joined, and it was actually born out of struggles we had working with our own clients, you know, so he would work with, he would be the contact for the client, but the client would be giving feedback on work that I had did or, or Matt had did. And then now you have this difficult sort of game of telephone to pass the feedback on and make the changes and then get the client's response again, you know? So the idea was, well, what if we just had almost like a password protected blog where everything was in one place and everybody saw the same thing. And then it would really shorten this communication loop. So that's how Basecamp started. And uh, Jason brought in David to, to program it. And uh, David created Ruby on Rails as a, as a sort of along the way to building the first version of Basecamp. And the thing that was different about Rails is you mentioned, you know, when we were preparing to start the podcast, that a lot of people are, are makers, you know, who listen, who listen to the podcast and, and, and follow Product Hunt. And Rails was sort of a maker's dream for me because it allowed me to make this jump beyond doing HTML and CSS for the, the web stuff that I was doing, the interfaces I was making, and actually start to work in the code because it was just so close to raw HTML, just had a little bit of extra code sprinkled in. It was really approachable. And through that, I actually started to learn how to program. And, and not only that, but learned a lot of, of concepts that the programming world has about how to manage complexity and how to deal with all the, I mean, there's so many gnarly things you have to deal with, you know, if you're doing programming and I was able to, to sort of have a foot in both worlds, the design world and the programming world. 
And as I looked at at what we were doing and, and what we were struggling with as the company started to grow and we took on bigger challenges, I started to have this idea that we could take some of the techniques the programmers are using and actually apply those to how we do product management, how we manage the development of the product. And so that got me into a role that was a little bit more of a quote unquote product role, you know, um, kind of think sitting above both design and programming and figuring out how those things come together. And then after a few more years went by, uh, we had actually had a lot of success under our belt where we were integrating design and programming really well. And we were doing it in ways that were unique in the industry and having a lot of success. So now the question was, we know how to build things. What's the right thing to build? So that kind of led me down the road of doing more strategy work, trying to answer the question of, you know, what's important to customers, what actually matters here and, and what decisions do we make? And so along that whole journey, I've sort of seen a lot of, you know, different sides of the product development process. And I've also collaborated a lot with Jason and David and, and the whole team growing from, from a team of three in the first version of Basecamp to our product team is around a dozen now, and the whole company is is over 50. Throughout that whole time, trying to articulate and frame the things that we were doing intuitively, you know, the values we had and, and the things that we knew were sort of true and trying to turn those into some sort of a, of a process that we can articulate back to ourselves as we grow so we can explain to new people who come on how we work and also articulate outside to the industry so that everybody can sort of experience the upside and and the good results that we've had from from working differently. That's awesome. I feel like there are so many cool things in there. Like one, how it's always been at the heart of everything you do at Basecamp to like not be siloed. It's almost like your career progression within the company is like a metaphor for some of the core principles of the culture. This idea of straddling the design world and the programming world that's really interesting. And I definitely want to go more into that as we talk about shape up and some of the advice that you're sharing in this new book. Um, and the other thing I wanted to say was just kind of like an ode to Rails, really, because um, as someone that also started playing around with HTML and CSS and then kind of thought, oh, gosh, like back end, what's going on there? Rails is also my first foray into it. I don't know if you know Mackenzie Child, but he did amazing tutorials. And, you know, Product Hunt is built on Rails. Uh, it's just uh, incredible. Okay. Yeah, it's it's incredible what that has done for for the makers community. And then like the final thing I wanted to say was this dissemination of information and this idea of like not only like sharing breast practices, but actually kind of opening up the hood of the car and kind of saying, This is how we work, that you know, this is what we do. I feel like that's incredible because it's not only important, I'm sure, for you to do that for your team. Like you said, you now have you know, 50 employees all distributed around the world, which is cool. But I feel like just in terms of knowledge capital for the industry and for aspiring makers and techies everywhere, it's so important to do that. And that's certainly one thing that I'm really grateful for Basecamp for, and I'm sure the other makers in our community are too. So I guess before we kind of jump up into Shape Up, I wanted to just hear a bit from you about leadership at Basecamp and how you and everyone else who's you know leading on certain verticals of the business and, and leading on teams really do well whatever it is you do to like create that base camp culture I feel like as someone who's outside of the organization but is sipping from the Kool-Aid you know follows all the social accounts subscriber to the newsletter 
I feel a very strong uh, connection to what I feel the base camp culture is. It's something that I feel resonates with the things that I care about, authenticity, building products that matter, keeping it simple. And I just wonder like how you as a leadership team like cultivate that and create that because in the product hunt makers community, we have a lot of people who are struggling with creating a culture in their team. They feel very strongly about the problem they're solving. They feel that they're articulating the mission. They feel that they're principled and they have values, but they still somehow along the way tend to find themselves either alongside a team member that doesn't quite reflect those or just in a pickle where they don't seem to see that resonating throughout. So I was just wondering if you could share a bit about that. That's a really interesting question. If I look back at sort of what is it that that gives us our strength and our kind of what is the backbone that everything sits on top of, I actually think it's it's the fact that we prioritize what we say real things. <laughs> it sounds maybe a little bit funny, but a lot of the time, a lot of the, the discussions people have and the debates they have and even the deliverables they make are about things that aren't real. They're about just different people's ideas or hopes or intentions or, or, or you know, concepts about how things should be. And we've always had a, a, a process and a way of working that stems from Jason and David from how they, how they started things off and the way that they work, which is if you think something is going to work, then go make it and let's look at it. Let's look at what you made in two days or, or, or in three days or a week, you know, and, and if you can't make anything yet that works, then maybe this thing isn't real and maybe it's not ready yet. And you know what I mean? And this, this culture of don't, don't make me a big document that, that describes what you think you're going to do. Go prototype something and, and, and let's click on it and see if it's, if it's a good idea or not, or, you know, this, this sort of distrust in documents and, and trust in running code. The thing that's really interesting about that is it gives you a few different feedback loops of realness. So first of all, of course, running code tells the truth of whether something is good or not, right? Because you can put it in front of a customer, you can click on it yourself, you can run it through a use case and see, does this actually help or not? Is this actually better than what I had before? Only running code can do that. But the other thing is that once you focus on running code, everybody's contribution becomes more valuable. You know, the designer who can open up the code and make a change to the interface and now you can go click on that different interface and say, yeah, that's better. Like that shows their skill. That shows what they can do. And then, of course, the same thing with programmers. They, they, they actually connect it and you say, wow, look at the skill that you have. That's fantastic. And I think a huge part of at least the, the part of the culture that I, that I can understand, because, you know, as you grow, there's so many many, many layers to culture, you know, in a company. And um, for me, the sort of original core of the culture that I really relate to is this feeling of mutual respect because we're all making things together and we all bring different skills to the table. So especially as I've gone more into a kind of a strategy role, it's been really important for me to be able to look at, like I can look at the work that a designer does who is maybe less involved in in the strategy side of of what we should do, you know, in the next cycle or what feature we should build and and say, "Wow, it's incredible how they executed that and all the thousands of little decisions that they had to make 
along the way to actually realize this concept and turn it into something real, you know? And, and at the same time, I have to deliver something or, you know, Jason delivers something when it comes to defining what the work is going to be. We say shaping the work for what, for what the, what we're going to do, let's say in the next cycle. And that work is actually concrete too, to the extent that here's an actual concept Here's how, here's how we think it's going to work. Here's why we think it's going to work. Here's what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. And then leaving a lot of room in that, you know, we, I talk in the book about, we don't assign tasks, we assign projects and we don't give people wireframes because that's kind of already doing the design for them. We use a, we use a rougher level of, uh, of design. We use breadboards and fat marker sketches that leave a lot more wiggle room and they leave a lot more things undefined but they pin down the important things, the affordances, the connections between things, how the flow moves between different places in the app. So certain things are defined, but a lot of room is left. Giving that room to the, to the team, to the designers and programmers is trusting them and enabling them to apply all of their expertise to, to make something that runs and make all the thousands and thousands of tiny trade-offs and decisions that have to get made to actually make it work and to to make the right scope calls so that it, it's so that it finishes and ships on time. That's amazing. <laughs> I feel like every time you start talking, I need to take lots of notes because I'm like, I must remember this. I have to <laughs> keep this in mind next time I'm building. Well, I mean, fantastic segue uh, onto ShapeUp. And I really wanted to focus on, you know, these themes, these concepts, these tactics that you're employing as you're shipping products at Basecamp, in particular, the ones which you've already touched on, which almost seem contrary to a lot of the advice that's out there. You know, when people think about a product that they want to build, they've found the problem, they've come up with the vision of a solution, they're working towards that MVP. The first thing you see is like wireframes. All right, get those wireframes down. And yet you you feel that wireframes are too concrete. And then in addition to that, it's very, very common for uh, makers or founders to feel compelled to write something like a project brief or a very well thought through document that articulates exactly what features need to be made, exactly how this product should operate. And in ShapeUp, you say how words are too abstract. So on the one hand, you have wireframes being uh, you know, too instructive, words being too abstract. Tell me a bit about you know, the risks of those and this mid- middle ground that you found. Yeah. So the challenge and opportunity is to work at the right level of abstraction where words are too abstract and, and the wireframe is too concrete. So we just take, take the example of let's go build a calendar, right? If you say build a calendar in words, what does it mean? Right. And if you, if you draw a whole bunch of wireframes for what that's going to mean specifically, whether it's the day view or the week view or how you're going to manage invitations and schedule alignment or whatever aspect of, of what you think a calendar is of the thousands of things that you could build there. If you build all the wireframes in advance, you've actually already done the work. It's like, instead of giving the, instead of giving somebody the work to do, which is difficult and requires thought and trade-offs and, and time and concentration and, and getting involved with the real problems, you've, you've just sort of, defined it all in advance and now and now you've reduced the person who who you're asking to do the design to grunt work you know because you've already you've already made the big trade-offs 
and 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 the problem is that if we overspecify the design up front with a lot of wireframes, we actually we make the most decisions when we have the least information. There's this process when we get into doing a project where we think we know what we need to do, and and that's like the there's the imagined tasks. It's like the stuff that I think we're is going to work out, and I expect we're going to have to do, but it's really just imagined in my head. And then you actually you you open up the 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 code and you start figuring out how things are connected in the existing system, or you open up your your tools for doing some design and you start moving things around and you realize like, oh, that's not going to work. Oh, that's not actually going to work. I thought that looked fine on paper, but now now that I'm clicking on it, we should actually do this instead. And that's instead of the imagined work, that's the discovered work. And and that's where the real work is and where all the real decisions get made is once you actually start doing the real work and you find out all the things that you thought were going to happen aren't exactly going to play out the way you thought, you know? So we don't want to get into, into, into that trap. The, the other aspect of this is, is how fast do we need to move and how much ground do we need to cover at different stages of the work? So work doesn't come from nowhere. You know, we, we kind of think of there's the project that we should do and then we specify it and then somebody's going to build it and, and it's just kind of, it's just going to appear. But there's, there's different phases and steps to figuring out what the work is, to, to shaping the work that we're going to, to, to give to a team. And in the very beginning phase, when we're trying to figure out kind of what is even the right approach for this project, we need to be able to move fast and cover a lot of ground and explore a lot of ideas. Otherwise, I mean, a lot of people have probably had the experience. You're sitting in front, you're standing in front of a whiteboard with a couple people and somebody goes up and sketches something and they put like a sidebar on the left side in their sketch. And now you're stuck with that sidebar all day. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, true. so you, yeah. you, you get locked into these, these visual decisions or these layout decisions that have nothing to do with the actual problem, with the underlying problem, just because you drew it there, you know, or you, you draw the wireframe and then you give it to the designer later and you're like, uh, make it like this, but don't make it look like this. Right. And it's like, how, what, how do you, you, you can't unsee it, you know? So what we want is to use different tools that allow us to, to improvise. So if we're using, you know, what we call in the book, a fat marker sketch, which is much rougher than a wireframe. And even faster than that, if we use a breadboard, which doesn't even have a visual design, it's just what, what, where are we in the app? What are the affordances that we can see and where do they take us? And then how does that get us through some kind of a meaningful flow. If you're using something like a breadboard, actually you can sketch five different, entirely different concepts for where you should go without slowing down and without getting locked into a visual decision. So that's creating a lot more latitude, both in terms of how much ground you cover for, for sort of what the project should be. And if you're trying to collaborate and, 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 and fire off ideas together in person, you can't just slow down and create a wireframe. Like, okay, everybody stop thinking, let's draw this. You know what I mean? You need, you need to be able to keep moving and trying ideas. And then, and then the output of that needs to be something that you can give the team that is enabling them to make a lot of choices and not boxing them in to, to a, a small number of specific choices that aren't actually the important things strategically that needed to be solved up front. 
That's incredible. I mean, the intuition makes so much sense. No one wants to get locked down a path of having, you know, a feature here or there just because it's the first thing someone put on the whiteboard. I know in, you know, the other Basecamp book, Getting Real, there's a huge focus on interface and why interface matters. I think one of the lines is something like, you know, it's the first thing a user sees. So of course, it's the most important part of the product. On a micro level, at what stage in developing do you actually start visualizing things and actually start thinking, oh, this is what it's going to be like when a user plays around with this? Yeah, I think we're in a way we're doing that from the start in our heads. It's just that the breadboard allows us to 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 walk through a flow without 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 locking into it. The button's going to be on the left or it's going to be on the right or it's going to be underneath this or above that, you know? The, the notion of the breadboard, it's, it's an analogy to electrical engineering. You have this sort of prototype circuit board and you have a, some, a bunch of you know, messy wires all over the place and you're just plugging these wires in and out of this thing. And you've got a battery and a switch and a light bulb and a little dial. And you turn the dial and the light bulb gets dimmer and brighter. And you've, you've put all the pieces together and you can verify that this, this little dimmer light bulb project works, you know? But you haven't made the decision of what material is the is the enclosure going to be made out of, and how 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 far are we going to recess the the dial in or out of the enclosure? Like all these industrial design decisions you'd have to make, right? So we're kind of making a distinction between what needs to be there and how do those affordances need to be connected in order for this thing to do what it's supposed to do. That's really where the conversation should be about interface early on. That's what an interface really is you know, is those relationships between the affordances and how they're connected and how they allow you to move, then there are going to be situations where the problem is somehow visual. Sometimes that's just part of the problem, you know? So for example, when we were working on this feature that's in Basecamp 3 right now to to take a to-do list and subdivide it into groups, you can kind of section off parts of a to-do list and and name the different sections there were some very specific things about this concept that relied on there's going to be a, a group of a sort of ungrouped to-dos are going to be on the top of the list and the group segment from the bottom up. And this this affects the layout of the list and, and where the dividers go. So then we use the fat marker technique, which is just as rough as you can sketch with as little, you know, sort of specific design and and we used to do this with a big sharpie marker because the idea was that it's sort of it's sort of just too difficult to be detailed. <laughs> you know what okay. I mean? Yeah. And um, uh, so so we'll do a lot of that where we'll have a very very scribbly, terribly scribbly, rough looking sketch, and but that becomes the deliverable in the pitch. It's not like now before I can pitch this, I need to turn it into some beautiful looking wireframe, and now I can give it to the team. No, the the thing we give to the team is the rough scribbly thing. But just well annotated, you know what I mean? With lots of context before and after. Here's what we're trying to do. Here's what we think the solution is. And then a little bit of labeling, like an arrow pointing to the top of this of this to-do group sketch saying, here's where the loose to-dos are going to go. And you can drag them from here to there, right? But very rough. I think we need to allow ourselves more roughness in the early phases of work. If you look at how animators work or artists work, the early phases of this of, of a painting or or an animated film are incredibly scribbly, 
you know, because they capture, they capture some movement or they, they capture some emotion or some energy, just this, this big, this, this big curving line. But then that becomes the, the, the more detailed sketch later, but you have to start rough. It's just how things are. It's so great to hear someone, you know, at your level who's got all that experience encouraging folks to embrace the roughness of early stages. Because one of the things that I see happening a lot in the product and community, just interacting with a bunch of different folks, is people who are delaying move or moving forward with something because it's not perfect yet. And I feel that we have to some degree fallen into a bit of a trap within the startup community, maybe because so many folks are seeking status, you know, like number one on Hacker News Today, number one on Product Ton, and kind of forgetting that there's like so much more joy in the creative process other than that. And I agree, you know, everything starts out a bit rough before you see it, you know, months, maybe even years down the line in the way that you enjoy it now. And I always think of some of my favorite shows as an example, you know, when you watch like the first Simpson sketch or like the first Rick and Morty and you're totally. just like what <laughs> what do they look like there totally. but you know it's it's a process right totally and a huge part of it is those of us who who are who are either in a leadership position within our teams or who are trying to 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 lead in, in the field we we lead by example and the thing is that you don't actually see the in between stages of work you, you always see finished products, you know, and there's not a lot of sharing of how rough the intermediate stages really are. And so I think a lot of it is just putting that out there as a model and saying, look, when it's this rough, that's actually how it should look. You know what I mean? Like this is, this is what a good deliverable is and, and creating that model. Yes. I love that. I think one of the things that uh, always stands out in Basecamp as a product, but also hearing from folks within the Basecamp team, listening to your podcast, is a real understanding of human motivation and the way we as individuals on a personal level or on a business level, however we might be interacting with technology, you know, how we are motivated as we go through the activity we're going through, you know, how we want to chat with people, connect with people, store information, etc. And I really felt that when I got onto this concept of betting, you know, like, oh, we don't plan at Basecamp, you know, we bet. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk me through this concept of betting and why it's so important in how you plan work. Yeah, well, so planning is the language of certainty. You know, if we talk about plans, we're talking about things that we know and things that we believe are going to happen. And it, this starts with just changing our mindset so that we actually think we acknowledge the reality, which is that we don't actually know what's going to happen. We don't know how this is going to work out. We're probably going to be wrong about some things. And so we want to use the language of risk instead of the language of certainty. And 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 so that's where betting comes in. So I, I'm not going to plan to ship something. I'm going to make a bet on this idea instead of that idea that this idea is is more likely to ship than that idea. So now I'm thinking about odds. You know, what which idea has has a better chance, which idea has better odds, and I can actually do work to improve the odds of a project that uh, that we're about to take on by shaping it more. So if I just say go build a calendar, my odds are very very low. 
right? Because who knows how the team is going to interpret that and and where they could get off, where they could get lost in in a million things that they could be doing. And remember, this is within the assumption that we have a certain appetite, a certain time frame of how much time we're willing to spend on this thing. So the other aspect of a bet is when you make a bet, you bet a certain amount. And it's it's very basic, but it's true. You you bet a certain amount, and when you bet that amount, you're you don't suddenly start paying more than you bet. So if you push some chips forward on the table, your chips don't start multiplying in front of your face. That would be a crazy universe. But in the in the software world, very often what happens is you say, Yeah, let's let's spend let's spend two weeks on that, right? And then you don't finish, and then you spend another two weeks, and you spend another two weeks. Or you say, let's spend six weeks on that. And before you know it, you spent 12 weeks. Well, how, how much did you bet? How much did you put on the line? You know, there should be a limit to your downside. So that if if you say, I think that this is worth six weeks, and then you 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 dedicate six weeks to it, and at the end of the six weeks, it you didn't finish, you don't you don't give it more time. <laughs> Because you only bet you only bet six weeks. It was only worth six weeks. In the time in between, so many things could have happened, right? You could have had the most ingenious idea for the big feature that you never realized that you needed. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, we have to do that as soon as possible, right? Or a crisis could have come up. What if there was some kind of a an issue that customers are starting to tell you about with a quality problem? And you're like, oh man, we've really got to fix that. Otherwise, more and more customers are running into it. This we've got really got to do this. You don't want to be waiting, who knows, another six weeks or longer to finish that thing that's not done yet when you actually have something that's more important and more urgent that came up since then. You never should be paying more than you bet on something in the past. So this is huge. You're acknowledging the fact that I don't know how this is go, but but I'm gonna I'm gonna bet on the thing with the best odds. You have a limit to the amount that you've bet. So you're only going to spend the amount of time on it that you actually think it's worth. We, we, we say the appetite instead of the estimate. And then the third thing is that if you make a bet, you are making a commitment. You don't bet something and then and then when the time comes, just say, oh, just kidding. I don't, I'm not going to pay. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's, that's part of the deal. Like That's part of the notion of a bet is you're making that, that skin in the game. And so... For us, that means we if we if we commit, let's say, a designer and two programmers to work on a project for six weeks, we in order to actually commit to that bet, we need to leave them alone. We can't interrupt them and say, hey, can you just go look at this other thing today? Or hey, support needs this other thing. Can we just like take a little break and work on that instead? It'll, it'll just take a day, right? All these little interruptions, it, you, 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 you miss one day you know, at the right point in a week and, and your momentum for the week is destroyed. And that is very few people are only getting, getting interrupted for one day. Usually the one day thing turns into three days and then your week is totally destroyed. Right. And now because one person got pulled away and the other person is still trying to make progress. Now the team's ability to move together at the same pace got destroyed. And that the, there's no way that the project has a fair chance of shipping. Right. So giving the team this uninterrupted time. So this is, this is sort of the you know, all the three aspects of the bet that, that it's, we're acknowledging the uncertainty that we have a payoff, that we're limiting our downside and that we're making this commitment to it, that the teams are actually going to be left alone and uninterrupted to do the work. This is, this is, this is how we want to 
try and get something done in a way that faces the reality of work instead of just telling ourselves that our plans are going to be correct and our estimates are going to be correct and always being wrong. Yes. I I feel like there's such a good opportunity here for me to ask you something that I see lots of makers raising in discussions on Product Hunt, perhaps because they're still starting out in their careers. They're fairly new when it comes to building teams. They're fairly new when it comes to working with distributed or remote engineering teams. How do you balance giving folks the space to work on what they need and protecting their time with what sometimes manifests almost as like a concern or a worry that folks aren't maximizing their capacity? That's a great question. We never think about maximizing our capacity. Instead, we ask ourselves a different question, which is, if six weeks went by and this thing that we are thinking about betting on, you know, we, let's, say, let's say we bet on this, this pitch and then we gave it to a team and after six weeks, this thing was done. How would we feel? Would we feel like the product got better? Would we feel like we made progress? Would we feel like we're moving ahead as fast as we want to move ahead? And if at the end of the six weeks, we're going to be high-fiving each other or we're going to be happy and say, man, that was a great use of time and the product's better. I'm really glad we did that. If that's true, it doesn't matter at all what happens during that six weeks. You know what I mean? Because that's actually asking ourselves the strategic question. Is this meaningful? Are we going to be glad we did it? Managing somebody's how somebody spends today versus tomorrow or how many hours they work today versus yesterday means nothing. That's just that's just whether their chair is getting warm or not. You know what I mean? That that has no relation to how the product is doing and whether we're moving forward as a business or not. So we need to we're doing the 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 betting and and the and the the resource commitment the strategic work that needs to happen at a more macro level than days and hours in order for it to be meaningful you know you're not going to get anywhere by by chasing everybody around and saying what are you doing today what are you doing tomorrow what are you going to do the day after that right we need to give them a meaningful goal that's well shaped that that has better odds of success and if we have this We've created a really good potential bet for ourselves by doing the shaping work on it. And we can say, we believe that this is doable in this period of time. And uh, it's actually going to ship in this period of time. And we're going to give the team the whole project. And they're going to come up with their own tasks. And they're going to work out all the many little details and small decisions that need to be there. And in the end, they're going to release it. And we're going to be glad that we did it. I love that. It feels so much in tune with that strategic vision, being focused on the customer, being focused on the end result and not getting too hung up on the nitty gritty that can crop up in between. I just wondered if you had any advice you could share with leaders or makers who are listening, who perhaps are still just trying to get into that mindset of allowing people in their team the space to work on it. Is there any like advice you can share to like help help them get there if they're still kind of more towards that micromanagey end of the spectrum? I think the thing that really helps is first of all you have to try and experiment at some point. At some point you have to say, okay, you know what, we're going to try one project like this, and it might be a little scary, and we might not know what's going to come out of it, but we have to try to learn, right? 
but you don't have to commit to changing the way that your company works for all future projects. You can just do one experiment, right? Or you can even do, I've seen some companies shrink it down and say, instead of a six week project, we're going to do like four weeks or something, something that's a little less scary for them. But the other thing that's really important is we don't just give the team the project and then, and then kind of cross our fingers and look the other way. So there's a difference between we're not just leaving them alone and not giving any support or any kind of, you know, structure to, to help them succeed. So the thing that we do is we, we, we're not interrupting the team and we're letting them come up with their own tasks and their own approach. But at the same time, we are giving them an expectation that, Hey, like by day four, we should see something on a, on a, on a test server that we can click on. So, so what that does is it encourages the team to, to bite off one small, meaningful piece of this, of this work where there's going to be a little bit of interface and that little bit of interface is going to be an interesting part of the problem. And that little bit of interface is going to be wired to a little bit of code. So when you click on it, it does something. Maybe it doesn't save to the database yet. Maybe all it does is, you know, move to the next page and remember one thing that you typed or, you know what I mean? But it's going to validate that this thing is working by bringing design and, and programming together on one little vertical slice of front end and back end, instead of like get all the design done and then hand all of that over to the programmer and then hope that it all comes together in the way you want. We're going to work in little vertical slices. Here's a little bit of UI and let's go hook that up and then click on it and then see how we feel. And we can even kind of run that little bit sort of through a, a use case that, that we think is important or very central, you know, to this, to this product. And then part of helping teams to do that comes back to roughness again. So the first version of the interface that the designer, let's say commits, doesn't need to be pixel perfect. The colors don't even matter. What they need is the affordances in place. So if you, if you have a, a screen that's really raw looking and the font is even maybe intentionally ugly, you know, just to communicate, like I haven't figured this out yet, you know, a bit of comic but, sans, yeah, yeah, totally. Right. But if the, if the, if, if the buttons are there and, and the right, the right elements are there, a, a programmer can take that. And now they know they have a lot of information about what to do next, just based on, on your choice of whether that's a radio button or a checkbox or, or, or a regular button that you press. And it is, is it all happening on one screen or is this more like a, like a, like three steps that you have to go through? Those are very fundamental decisions that affect the programming that the interface designer can provide without doing styling. So actually the, the first thing that the designer delivers doesn't need styling in it for the team to, to, to really gather momentum and start to, to put something onto a, onto a staging server that then somebody can click on. And then if anybody outside the team is worried about progress, if, if day four or day five, or maybe the very, very, at the latest, the very start of week two, there's something to click on that's live. This shows like, look, okay, the team's working together. I can see that part of this product is coming together, right? And then maybe there's some extra programming work to do to really build this out. So then the designer goes back to that raw version and starts to layer in some more style or improve the typography or, you know what I mean? Like tweak the proportions of things. Uh, all of that can be done in layers 
on top of something that's already actually working versus trying to get it all perfect and then and then trust that in the 11th hour, it's all going to weave together. <laughs> and this gives everybody confidence. You know what I mean? Everybody can see like, look, this is real. This is actually coming together. And, and then you're not sitting there nervous waiting for all of this sort of fake work to turn into real work later. Yeah. It's incredible because I almost don't know how to frame this next question, but I'm just going to start. I feel like there have been so many actionable strategies that you've shared here, but also, you know, in more depth in the book, Shape Up. A lot of these are based on products you've shipped, things that you have built, improvements you've made to Basecamp. Are there ever times when you do all of that and it still goes wrong or a feature that you really anticipated to get a lot of engagement isn't quite used you talk in the book shape up how to know when to stop but i just wonder like do you still have to ask yourselves that and kind of go okay let's stop <laughs> absolutely we i mean we we still make mistakes and we've had projects that 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 didn't work out the difference is now we have a language to explain where the problem happened the thing is that there's the shaping part of the work of figuring out what what do we actually think we should do and what is the what are the basic elements and the boundaries of the solution what what are we going to sort of not do and where's the focus of this thing and and that is the strategic design work before we bet on the on the project right and if we shape something that has a that's totally strategically not the right thing to do but it's very doable and we give it to the team and they do a really good job of executing that and 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 shipping it within 6 weeks the team can celebrate a victory because they were they were able to finish it right but then we might learn that strategically it wasn't the right thing to do which is feedback on the shaping side like oh that wasn't the right thing to do right so many teams are struggling with both at the same time and they don't know how to tease them apart do you know what i mean like you have an idea that's maybe a good idea, maybe a bad idea strategically, but, 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 but you, you, you can't every, every, you know, if you're, let's say you're working in sprints and every two weeks you're doing the stuff that you didn't finish in the last sprint and you keep throwing more time at it and everyone's sort of rushing because they don't have enough time to think and they don't have clear boundaries on the work. So then they're, they're producing a lot of technical debt. So now the next time when they have to do a project, there's all this bad code and stuff that kind of half works because they had to rush last time. And, and now you're never able to really ship anything in a timely way. And you have all kinds of defects and, 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 and bad morale. And, and now, and now how do you, how do you say, well, it, it, nothing feels like a success. You know what I mean? So I would much rather have a healthy, have a healthy team that's good at shipping stuff and then occasionally make a strategic mistake. You know what I mean? That, that, that can happen. And, and then because because our bets have a limited downside, because we're we're saying we're not going to just keep building this until it's done, we're setting our appetite. How much is it worth? If this thing is only worth, let's say, six weeks, and then in the end, it turns out that it wasn't the right thing to do, we only lost six weeks. Versus, you know, you just keep putting more time and more time and more time into something that maybe isn't even the right thing to do, you know? So at, at most something can go wrong and it can, and, you know, or, or maybe even something goes wrong in the development side that can happen from time to time. And the whole project crashes and burns. 
But you know what? You only lost six weeks and you all get to do something better. That makes more sense, you know, at the end of the cycle. And you can see that coming. And that's really healthy. I think that's wonderful. I feel like if there was anything that I was going to take away from that, thinking of the projects that I'm working on now within my team, it's to have a very like transparent and open conversation around like risks and investments, basically. Because I do feel that sometimes in teams, you might feel um, as a contributor that you don't necessarily have autonomy over that. You know, it might be like one of the founders telling you, okay, this is what we're going to do you're the team that's going to make it happen. But exactly as you said, everyone is coming into a project from a position of mutual respect, wanting to do their best, contribute their skills in the time agreed to make the best thing happen. And it's so important to just be on the same page about how things are progressing and the status of stuff, not just what things look like, not just playing around with the prototype, but actually kind of like thinking ahead about what's next and whether that's you know still on track as per planned or is this changing because i i feel that even thinking of other tech companies that i've worked in i haven't necessarily felt that i had the autonomy to mention those things or bring them up or adjust my contributions according to those things but it feels like at basecamp everyone does that is so important i mean we we depend on the teams to make adjustments to the concept, to cut things, to cut things that turn out to not be essential. The, the thing is that there, there's the there's the the way that we shape the work and 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 prepare it to bet on. It's the big boundaries of the work, the big things to do and not to do at a, at a, at a high level. There are so many little decisions that the team is going to have to make, and you know, we, we talk about scope creep sometimes, right? And there's this notion that scope creep is somebody who doesn't, somebody somewhere else telling you to do more, right? And, and, but really real scope creep is just a natural, normal part of doing work. You think that cleaning the garage is not going to be a big problem, or you think that, you know, and then, and you, you give yourself four hours on a Saturday to do it. And then you start doing it and you're like, oh man, this is going to take, like, <laughs> this is going to take three days. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you, you didn't know it until you got in there yes. and all work is all work that has creativity or novelty in it, where you're doing something that's not 100% exactly the same steps you did before. Any work like that has this, this unknown aspect to it, where there's what you think you're going to do, the imagined work. And then there's the discovered work of, oh, we actually are going to need to do this and we need to do that. And the thing is that as, as the team is discovering all the things that they actually have to do, they're also noticing a lot of things that they think they have to do. You know, like we're building this custom here, like there's this example um, from a friend of mine, we're building this custom payment form for, for small businesses to invoice their customers. And maybe, maybe we need to allow them to customize the URL of their payment form so that it's something that they would prefer. And, and that can feel like something you should do because it's better, right? But, but actually, just deciding to customize the URL gives you maybe an entire week's worth of work 
right? We have to now we have to have an error state for if the URL you want is already taken. And and what if the URL that you want has like some kind of offensive language in it? And now we want to now we're screening through some dictionary of bad terms when we're t- testing you possible URLs, and you're way off building something complicated that had nothing to do with the core value. When in the first place, some gobbledygook token URL might have been fine, right? So the thing is that um, we need to empower the teams to notice those things coming up or, you know, maybe even a, a, a first version of the design has a, has a, a pull down in it and they realize, you know what, this would be way faster to implement if we used checkboxes instead or something like that, you know, and there's this, this trade out, this trading back and forth between design and programming. What, what, what is important here? What matters? What's worth the extra time? And then making constantly making cuts to all that stuff that's just popping up out of the work and saying, this is a must have, this is a nice to have, this is a nice to have, right? And always cutting down. And we we really rely on the teams to make those judgments. That's the only way that the work is actually going to get done on time. That's incredible. Ryan, thank you so much for sharing all these words of wisdom. As we're sort of nearing the end of our interview, sadly, I wish I could have more time with you. I can't really let you go without asking you about products that you love or products that you and your team rely on. Being the product and community, you know, we're the best place to launch and discover new products. So I always like to ask our guests a bit of a change of gears from strategy and advising, but um, if you could just talk to us a bit about maybe the things that are on your home screen, a new app that you've discovered that you're in love with, or anything that you guys use as a team to stay productive. Yeah, uh, I've got a few favorites. Honestly, the iPad it blows me away all the time. I especially the 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 combination of the iPad Pro and the and the pencil. I just love what they did with the pencil. There were a lot of styluses on the market and they all basically worked as a replacement to your finger. And then Apple decided that the only way the only way the stylus was going to get better is if they actually put some extra stuff under the glass as well. So the the, the pencil isn't just a finger replacement, it's actually a different input that's speaking to some other stuff that's under the glass in the iPad. And what's amazing about that is that the iPad knows the difference between, between the mark, what, like whether to make a mark or not, you know what I mean? So you, 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 you move the pencil on the screen and it makes a mark, but then you move your finger and it just moves the, moves the canvas around. And, and, and that kind of interaction is such a fundamental thing that changes everything about, about, about drawing on the iPad. So I do all of my thinking and sketching if I'm alone, you know, uh, on, on, in notability on the iPad these days. And it's just amazing. It's just fantastic. And I I really feel like it's, it's kind of like the computer I always like sort of dreamed about, you know, or almost like the science fiction computer, like you open it up and, and you can draw in it, you can type in it, you can, you can do all kinds of creative stuff. Like it's, you can read you can read on it. It's just, it's, it's a book. It's everything. It's just, it's fantastic. And I I'm really excited about, I, I've enjoyed kind of um, trying to use the iPad as much as I can and sort of figuring out where the boundaries are of it. I wrote the book on the, on the iPad actually, and did all the, all Oh the, wow. What an endorsement. <laughs> and I did, I did all the sketches, all those cartoons and sketches and illustrations yeah. were all done on the iPad as well. It's amazing. You know, even, even if, if you draw in an app, like, like notability or good notes, Actually, the output you're drawing is actually vector. So you can you can you can save it as a PDF and you could you could blow that up to billboard size and it would be tack sharp. Like it's amazing. That is incredible. Yeah, it's totally cool. So that's 
that's that's been one of my favorites. The other one I've really been enjoying is The Economist has an iPhone app and they've been playing they've been playing with different formats over the years just as as an observer. So, you know, they had an app that was kind of a reproduction of the magazine and then they had a different app called Espresso, which was sort of them experimenting with a a, a, a more shrunken down kind of daily version of the magazine. And now the current app has both of these two things combined. So you can read a bunch of long form articles, but they also have this thing called the morning briefing. And it's like all the news that happened yesterday and then three or four stories that are very, very short to read, but give you a little bit more depth. And you can just flick through this and and it just takes a few moments and you're kind of up to speed for the day. And I just love that they're experimenting with different with different formats. Yeah, that's incredible. Randomly, I remember being invited to their offices here in London, um, in Mayfair, about three years ago by someone who had just recently been hired to lead on digital. And she was very honest with me. There was like a bunch of different like tech people in the room. And she was just like, I am trying to bring a very old establishment publication like into the modern era with like better products. Uh, so I am very glad that they are actually getting there. It seems like she was um, successful. They're doing an amazing job. <laughs> yeah. And you combine that also with the, um, you know, they have uh, some podcasts and just, just look at the transition from the magazine to this, this other app that has like articles of a different length that's published at a different frequency plus the podcasts. And you see just, they're just exploring a lot of different media formats. And then you have to produce content in a different way for those formats that can get consumed in different situations. It's just, I love that stuff. I just think it's really fascinating. Amazing. That's incredible. Ryan, thank you so much for sharing all this incredible advice with the product community today. For folks who now want to get their hands on a copy of Shape Up and find out more about you and what the Basecamp team are doing, where should they go? So you can just go to basecamp.com slash shape up and the whole book is available to read online. You can read it on the web and you can also download it as a PDF. And we don't even ask for your email address. We are just interested in, in sharing these ideas and, and also very interested in hearing back about your success stories. So if you have questions that come up as you try it, or if you, if you have some successes, you can write us at uh, shapeup at basecamp.com. I'm reading those and, and responding to them. And it's been amazing to, to hear everybody's experience. So I'm, I'm interested, you know, in how we can all kind of share experience with each other as we learn how to, how to apply this in companies of different sizes and, and different contexts and all learn together. This is incredible. I'll make sure that in the show notes, we also include a link to shape up on product hunt. So you can also check out the community's reviews and yeah, how they found it. Ryan, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me. I really enjoyed it. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into Product Hunt Radio. I've got a favor to ask you. Will you take a minute to review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us right now? Thank you. Hello, Abadesi from the Product Hunt team here. I'm the head of Maker Outreach. So it's my job to look after our makers community, which you can find at producthunt.com slash makers. So what I wanted to do today was get a bit of feedback and advice from you, our wonderful community, about how you do personal branding. So on Makers This Week, we've been having a discussion, um, really just talking about what different platforms we use for personal branding, what's worked and what hasn't to help us increase awareness of our work, awareness of our career experiences, our skill sets, 
and really find opportunities for ourselves. I think personal branding is really important, especially in the digital age that we live in, because it's one way for us to show off what we've done. And showing off what we do is what creates opportunities, whether that's being invited to be a co-founder on a really cool project, being hit up for some consulting work, or even being offered a job. If you're not putting yourself out there on platforms, and it'll be a lot harder for people to discover you. So maybe you're on AngelList, uh, maybe you're on Product Hunt, maybe you're on LinkedIn. But whatever it is, share with me. Let me know. So, so <laughs> this is a hilarious tip. I pretend I'm a cat on social media and got good traction. Everyone loves cats. Yeah, everyone does love cats. I mean, the Product Hunt mascot is a cat. The internet in particular loves cats way more than any other animal, uh, which is pretty incredible. The thing is, what happens when you pretend to be a cat and then someone tries to hire you to be a cat model for their new cat fashion line? And then you're a human. What do you do then? All right. So let's hear from Eric. Hey, Eric. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us on this special Product Hunt Live. Tell me yeah. more about LinkedIn and how you use it for personal branding. Yeah, I think for me, it really started around, I wanted to make a career transition. So to me, it was more of, uh, you know, that professional social network, rather than trying to make that career transition using Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat. I'm focusing on um, really what I'm passionate about. And for me, I'm a product manager. So I was passionate about product management. So um, finding other like-minded product managers um, was a lot easier there than anywhere else. But I mean, you can you can search by people's career choices. So Got it's it. just a so lot easier. Literally, could you just talk us through that? So I know a bunch of folks in the community mm-hmm. who are trying to get into PM roles as well. Some of them are actually just about to graduate, but some of them, like you, are trying to transition from other angles. So kind of talk us through how you actually did that. Like, would you just reach out to people cold? No, it kind of started from um, my first, uh, what is my first degree connections. I would look at who were in product management roles from my first degree connections, and then also my second degree connections, and just kind of get to know them. I started talking to other product managers from like Google and Amazon and uh, Nike, and just oh, wow. getting to know more about the role, learning it. And then some of the other things that I also try to do really aggressively, which just it propels myself on LinkedIn, is like connecting with meetups in my local area. Okay. So like I meet up with other product managers or I meet up with UI and UX professionals and other um, startup, startup companies in the local area. And then, and then, of course, connect with them on LinkedIn. And then all of a sudden, your network starts to grow more and you learn more and more about people. And that just is huge. It's just a huge benefit as you try to like transition into a different career. Yeah, that's incredible. One thing that I love about the LinkedIn app is that they have this option to just see who is in the room with you that's also on LinkedIn, but you're not connected to. And that's incredible yeah. when you go to meetups or you go to conferences, because you can literally just like fire up the app and then almost use that as a way to start talking to people. You can just be like, oh, hey, I just like saw you on the LinkedIn app. Um, you're working in the community as well or marketing or whatever. And I'll just be like, so do I. Uh, so that's really cool. One thing I wanted to ask you, because someone asked this in Product and Makers discussions this week, was LinkedIn groups. Have you found LinkedIn yeah. groups to be helpful in like connecting with other people or expanding your network? No. 
That's actually, it's funny. I'm a part of a LinkedIn group right now where we were just having that conversation about how it seems like a product offering that LinkedIn has given to everybody on their platform, but has completely orphaned it and hasn't provided any value from it. It's really weird. I'm, I'm a part of, gosh, probably like 15 groups and I've gotten zero value from any of them. Nobody talks, nobody posts anything in them. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's fear-based. Maybe we're the problem and it's not LinkedIn. Um, Mm. But there's almost no reason to be a part of any groups, it seems like. Yeah, I agree with that. It sounds like your approach of just being really laser focused on the types of roles of people you want to connect to, in this case, product management, and then being super um, like proactive with actually sparking up conversations, asking lots of questions, asking about meetups is the kind of strategy that's worked for you. Yeah. And then also one of the things that I've also found is um, posting content that you actually care about. So I've been pretty active. Um, I started this about a month and a half ago, just realizing that I needed to be more proactive on their network and um, started posting more content about things that I thought were really interesting, things that were going on in the product space. And Mm -hmm. most of it was me just kind of sharing other content that had been produced by other people. It's not original content, not yet anyways. And that has really boosted, I've noticed, um, people reaching back out to me as well. Oh, cool. So it's a little more of an organic way of getting people to connect with you versus you constantly hunting for people. (laughs) So you're you're sharing stuff that you've discovered. You're not even writing things, just interesting articles and posts that you find. Yeah, for me, it's step one. Step two will be writing my own stuff, and I just haven't gotten there yet. (laughs) <laughs> That's awesome. And out of curiosity, like you, you mentioned that you transitioned for, into PM. How long did it take you to do that? Once you decided you were going to start actively looking for roles and started sort of networking in that space? Incredibly difficult. Yeah, I live in an area where product management is just not a part of the working culture. Um, I live, you know, I live in Sacramento, California, and mm-hmm. most companies here just haven't figured it out. In order for me to make you know a real transition, I'd have to move to Silicon Valley or Seattle or somewhere else. But up here, it's been incredibly difficult just because there's not a lot of companies that are seeking that role. But there are. And, um, and so it's been going well. It's just it's very different. Yeah, I hear you. Um, that's the thing. Like We kind of forget that, particularly in tech, there are real pockets where there's so much opportunity and like just a few miles down the road, like it's not quite popping there. That's right. Wow. Cool. Well, Eric, thank you so much for joining in and like sharing all this advice. This has been extremely valuable. I've learned stuff and I'm sure the community has too. Thanks for taking time to join us. Anytime. Jay, Jay Kirti123 is in India. Hello. I love India. I had a chance to visit in 2014. It was very good. I went to Delhi, Agra, Jaipur, Kochi. Yeah, it was awesome. There's still a lot I didn't get to see. I'd love to go back. We've got Mumbai in the house. We've got Atlanta, ATL. What's up? London, Amandine. We're in the same city. How cool is that? Hey, Kay, thanks for joining. Tell us all about Medium and how you've been using that platform for personal branding. Um, so basically, I do not have so much followers on Twitter mostly. But the good thing about Medium is if you write a good article about what you have made, you can publish it in different publications like Codebust is there, Free Code Camp and many others. So if you write a good article and if it's about good content, 
and the good app that you have made then it's the best platform i guess if you are someone new to twitter or somewhere like i really make really cool products but then because of having low number of followers over here i end up writing articles and that really helps that's awesome so you launch a product and then when you write the medium post what are you writing about are you writing about the journey from like having an idea to launching it are you writing about what the product does talk to us a bit more about what that story is that you're telling so it's mostly about the product what it is and how it can help so once i made a product it was majorly about a security concern that's there with the node environment that's available so i made a npm that helps you get away from that bug that malicious code so that's something people are looking for and if you write it good enough people will find you through google search and other mediums so that maybe your npm starts getting used much more often that ways so that's it's about awesome. how you help the community as such that ways got it so you're doing like a content marketing kind of strategy you're writing about mm-hmm. it you hope it gets picked up in seo and anytime people are searching for products like that they'll find it exactly. that way exactly so you find the problem in the society you try to fix it and then write how you have fixed that thing so that it works out naturally organically got it and out of curiosity yeah. your identity as a maker a developer a builder an expert in that field do you use medium for that as well like apart from promoting your product do you actually create any content anywhere to speak about your brand does that make sense like your brand as a maker the things that you're interested in and the things that motivate you so for that particularly there are a few links that i have made i have my own website for sure other than that uh, my product and portfolio i have a few applications on product and also so that links speak about me so whenever i write an article i i redirect users to the product hunt page or to my website yeah that's awesome yeah. i think personal websites is something that we should yeah, definitely like. talk more about um thank you so much k i really appreciate that yeah thank you i am a huge twitter fan uh but i do also say this to people that uh, i mentor or people who are asking for advice about how to break into tech or how to get new opportunities in tech transition careers get investment for their startup whatever it is the tech world spends a lot of time on twitter a lot of time on twitter as you guys know you're as a channel if you are serious about staying in the startup world in the tech world someone says i still haven't picked a platform for building and mailing email lists but that's pretty important for growth yes so i've definitely noticed a trend towards just sending personal newsletters it could be a roundup of what's happening in your field uh Cassidy Cassidy Williams who's also been on an episode of Product and Radio she's got a great one that I subscribe to I see folks using things like tiny letter review uh mailchimp or sometimes even just like their own mailing list and whatever email clients they have to do some kind of weekly roundup to keep people updated. Saron Yiperek of Code Newbie who's also been on Product and Radio does one too, which is less um regular but still very good. And yeah, I think definitely like you know, if 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 you enjoy long form content, you're good at writing emails and that can be really powerful. I have a friend that does like five articles each week that he's found about climate change and sustainability because that's his space and that's what he's really interested in and he kind of just curates this little collection and sends it out it's called like the Friday five and that's amazing so i do think email can be very powerful and very helpful um so thanks for reminding us about that and for sharing that 
Sertanium is saying Mailchimp seems like the 500 pound tortilla in the room, but I hardly send out to not annoy. I don't know. It's interesting. I've been talking to some makers about this recently. I think open rates and emails for any kind of community based business can actually be very high. Like, I know someone who does a weekly newsletter with a 49% open rate. Like, one in two people is opening it up. That's really high. So, I think for a very curated content to a very specific audience, emails can be a really good tool and they will be seen as annoying. Hey, Annette. Yes. Thank you so much for joining. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Thanks for having me. Wonderful. So as you know, we're talking about the platforms that we use. Oh, I'm great. I'm great. I'd love to hear from you. What platform do you use for personal branding? I'm using LinkedIn and not uh, frequently enough. So I, I'm glad that you're covering this topic and, and um, sharing insights and suggestions. I um, have been focused on more of the brand than my personal brand. And so I really like what you were saying about authenticity and bring it, bringing it forward. My question is, you know, from a, the standpoint of a founder who's working on a tech-enabled startup, a marketplace, what are some platforms that you're finding are beneficial to use for personal branding? Totally goes back to what I was talking about some moments ago, um, Anne Laura's recommendation. I think absolutely yes. I just think trust is so important. And the reason why more mature brands have trust is because there's a legacy of positive experiences behind them. You know, there's like a, a whole legacy mm-hmm. of firsthand accounts of like, oh, I love my Nike shoes or, oh, I've had this gap jumper for like 20 years or, you know, whatever. And I think <laughs> when you're first starting out, there's no trust behind that brand. The name of the company, the logo of the company does not create any emotional response to me as a person. I think Simon Sinek talks a lot about this in his TED Talk and in a lot of his writing. You know, what's the actual like Mm -hmm. emotional drivers behind consuming a product or consuming a service? And um, I always love to remind myself of his research because I feel that that is at the heart of branding. Like at the heart of branding is trying to like create this feeling of positivity and this feeling of trust. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.